turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. And we kicked off this series just a few weeks ago. We're now entering into our third, what is known as the Beatitudes. Uh, And this third Beatitude, as we've talked about, these are beautiful attitudes that God desires that we have in what is known as this upside-down kingdom. Now, when we say upside-down, we're saying that Jesus takes things that the world does and totally turns what the world values up on its head because what God values is different than what this world values. And we see these kingdoms in some way, these kingdoms in conflict. There's the kingdom of this world and there's the kingdom of God. And these two are opposed to one another. And Jesus comes and he teaches us how to live in the middle of this sinful world. And we know today that one of the phrases that many people often cite in how they they go about their work, they go about their schooling, just to go about their life, is the evolutionary concept known as survival of the fittest, right? Survival of the fittest. And it was coined by Herbert Spencer, who was a Darwinian disciple, after he read on the origin of the species. As a matter of fact, Darwin himself took that comment and put it in subsequent versions and it was his way of understanding how people would survive and how, how he thought the world continued on. As people that survived were those that were able to adapt and they, those who were able to do whatever was necessary to get ahead. And this has become part and parcel of our world today. Think about your workplace. Think about your schooling. People cutting corners all the time. People willing to stab other people in the back. People willing to bring you down. People willing to do anything and everything to get ahead. And we see that in our world today. People will sacrifice anything to get power, fame, fortune. They'll do anything. They'll sacrifice their complete integrity to do it. And we see it all the time. And maybe perhaps we've done it ourselves. And we feel this this measure of shame at having done so. And Jesus calls to us, and he calls us back to himself, and he says, no, 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 that's not how I want you to live. I have a totally different standard for you. If you're a part of my kingdom, and and you're one of my children, then this is how you are to live. And he presents a concept that is largely foreign, and honestly not very attractive to us today. He talks about the word meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's Matthew 5, 5. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word meek, I go, it's not a a word you want to talk about. It's not even a sermon you really want to hear. Who wants to hear about being meek? Do you? I don't think I want to show up for that sermon. Oh, they're preaching on meekness. Well, that goes up there with about like the Levitical laws on what clothes I should wear. You know, it's not exactly the most attractive subject in the world. And I I have to confess as a pastor, even as I used to uh, read through the Sermon on the Mount, I, I would, would kind of just get through the Beatitudes. I knew there was something profound there, but just what I saw and observing it firsthand, it didn't attract me. I knew it was important, but yet it didn't call to me. And honestly, it's, it's not since I've really studied this, this subject that I see that there is something so profound here that goes completely against the grain of our world and what it values, that God calls to us. I mean, it's something different, completely different. And it's going to take us all to put on uh, God's lenses, if you will, to see the world through his eyes, see what he values, and how we are to live this meek life that he desires us to do. Because Scripture shows that it's not the survival of the fittest that will be standing at the end of time. It's the survival of the meekest. And that is completely contrary to everything that we know. So we're going to have to to change our thinking 
and reorient it to be able to see the way that God desires it to be seen. But before we go any further, let's pause for a moment asking God's blessing on our time together. Father, we come before you seeking to understand. Lord, uh, we deal with so many stresses and pressures, and, and we are confronted day in and day out by so many people living contrary to the way that your word desires us to live. And we find ourselves in conflict. Lord, wanting to side with you, but yet seeing how others interact and seeing how our flesh rails against the desires of the Spirit. Lord, we don't know what to do, and so often we are just caught in the midst of a spiritual no-man's land. Lord, please help us to see your word with your eyes and help us to embrace this concept that you have and this truth that you have laid out in your word for the glory of your name. And help us, teach us, and show us how to do what you have called us and commanded us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we can really get into our subject matter for today, it's always important that I find you have to define the terms. You ever got into an argument with somebody and you're shouting back and forth and you realize that you have two totally different definitions in your mind? <laughs> I see a lot of women. Mm-hmm. They're looking at their husband. Uh, but it's true. We, we get into arguments and we need to define the terms. And so we need to get a good definition of what meekness is because many of us think of meekness as what word rhymes with it? Weakness, right? I don't even have to really prompt you on that. I don't need to give you too much about it. Because we are taught that meekness is weakness. And we see that there are two completely contradictory definitions of the word meek. First of all, there is the world's definition. Now, I want to show you this definition that the world has given unto us for meekness. It's quiet, gentle, submissive, and easily imposed upon. Now, does that sound very attractive to you? No, it doesn't. Who wants to be considered to be easily imposed upon? And basically, for some of us, we're translating it as, blessed are the doormats. Letting people walk all over us. Letting people have their way. And, and it's a negative con- connotation. But see, God's word has something totally different and changes the word entirely. God's word, so we have the world's definition and the words. And the word's definition is this, strength under control. Totally different in in everything that it represents and everything that it means. Strength under control. Imagine a, a powerful horse, if you will. And horses are beautiful animals of raw power. And they're wild until they get that, until they are broken and they get that bit in their mouth that can control them. So it's this power now, this raw power, that is being directed. And it's the same with us. It is showing that we have a master that has broken our spiritual pride, and he is directing us, and we have a greater authority that we're to be listening to. And it's taking that and and having it under control, this strength under control. And I'm going to spend the rest of this message drawing that out and trying to help us all have the tools necessary to apply this in our homes, in our schools, and in our workplaces. I want to give you some practical tips on what to do and how to be meek, not weak, for the glory of God. So we have those two definitions. Now, I want to to examine this word, even what it means. It's the Greek word pros. P-R-A-U-S is what we would transliterate it as. 
and it occurs only four times in the New Testament. Three of those times being in the book of Matthew alone. And it has, it's a synonym um, of gentleness and signifies absence of pretension or considering yourself higher than you are, but it is coupled with the understanding of self-control. See, the idea is, is, is of one understanding who they are and not being threatened when other people come against you, but can maintain self-control in the midst of difficulty and hostility. So I'm maintaining myself and how I respond to other people. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, but it's not weakness. It does not denote cowardice, because not only what, do I want to define what it is, I want to define what it's not. It's not cowardice, it's not spinelessness or timidity, or the willingness to have peace at any cost. Neither does meekness suggest indecisiveness, wishy-washiness, or a lack of confidence. Meekness does not imply shyness or a withdrawn personality, as contrasted with that of an extrovert, nor can meekness be reduced to mere niceness. Bearing this in mind, we must note that the Greek word's development in classic literature And its other images in the New Testament absolutely confirm the popular translations of meek and gentleness being used interchangeably. Now, in Greek, uh, in classical Greek, the word was used to describe tame animals, soothing medicine, a mild word, and a gentle breeze. It is a word with a caress in it. But it also implies self-control. Aristotle, the great philosopher, explained that in the mean between excessive anger and excessive angerlessness... So the man is able to balance his anger. It's strength under control. The person is strong. He is gentle, meek, mild, but he's in control. Now, I still think that it's hard to try to get, what does that look like? Strength under control. We have the horse image. and I could come up with several different illustrations, but let's get some descriptions of that and what that looks on life. And this is why I love Scripture, by the way, because Scripture always represents life in all of its ugliness. And there's people's struggles and then their failures. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It shows what people dealt with and how they failed as well as their, their great successes. And I want us now to pause for a moment and get and look at some different biblical descriptions, some biblical descriptions of meekness portrayed in Scripture. And we're going to be examining these different biblical descriptions. And uh, we have a, a, a different cast of, char- cast of characters. Now, let me say this at the onset. We're going to be looking at episodes from their life. Episodes. Now, it's not to say that they were completely perfect, nor were they always meek, but there are certain episodes within their lives that God highlights, and I believe we can see how they were meek. Now, the first one that I want us to take a look at is the great patriarch Abraham. Abraham. Now, Abraham was a, uh, he is known as the father of Judaism. He's also known as the father of, or or Christians trace their heritage back to him. So do Muslims. They all trace their heritage back to Abraham. And he is the great hall of famer of faith. He's a great guy. But there's an episode in his life where he had been promised the land, this promised land, and to be a, a beneficiary of God's covenant with man. And he's to inherit this land. And his nephew comes along, Lot. And Lot is a property owner, just like, not property owner, but he owns a lot of different cattle, and so does Abraham. And they realize that they can't live together, that they needed to expand and take over land. And rather than assert his own right 
that this is my land, he gives opportunity for Lot to pick and choose what part of land he wants. And then he, he's meek in that regard. He's allowing the strength under control. He could assert his right, but he doesn't. He lets Lot choose, and then he takes what's next. So that's Abraham. But Abraham's probably not the greatest example in the world. I, I like Joseph. Joseph is a great example. We've all, we know the story of Joseph. If not, if, maybe you've seen the musical. Okay? Joseph and his amazing technicolor coat, right? His many-colored coat. Um, Joseph, though, I mean, it is a story of dysfunction, and this could be complete reality TV. <laughs> I mean, Joseph's life is reality TV, and it's an expose, it's 2020, it's everything with Joseph. You have this guy who has this aspiration of greatness, and he shares this. I mean, he believes God has called him to something great. He has these dreams about it. He goes and shares with his brothers, and his brothers, rather than go, wow, that's cool, what do they do? They go, hmm, let's kill him. I can't stand that guy. Let's kill him. So Joseph comes out, and he's got his coat, and they're like, you know what? Let's beat him up. Like big brothers do. Did your big brother ever beat you up? My big brother beat me up all the time. And, he, and these guys beat him up. I mean, they just put a whooping on him. And then they throw him in a pit. And they're like, let's kill him. And, and, and fortunately, one of the brothers goes, let's not kill him. I got a better idea. Let's sell him. Now, we, we kind of think of that. I mean, we, we don't realize that that's going on today, by the way. Do you know that? People are selling their children different countries. I mean, it's, nothing's changed. They sell him into slavery. And then they have the, the, the gall to take his coat, tear it up, and douse a goat's blood on it and pretend that he's dead. They want to hide just their evil action. So years goes by. I mean, Joseph goes into Egypt as a slave, gets purchased by Potiphar, who's an Egyptian official, and and he becomes a really faithful steward, works his way up, number one guy in charge. But by this time, Joseph's starting to fill out. Remember, he was a teenager. And you get into your 20s, what happens? What happens? You start to fill out, right? At least for men, right? I mean, I, went, I gained 50 pounds my first year of college. And, I, and all my, I kept wondering why all my jeans were so tight. I, couldn't, I, I just filled out. You know what it's like. Guys fill out, they get bigger. And Joseph filled out, and he's got some muscle. So much so that Potiphar's wife says, hmm, He's cute. She is. This is exactly what happens. This is what happens today. And so she gets in her mind. She's trying to set up to have an affair with Joseph. I mean, this is, you can't write this stuff. And Joseph isn't interested. And so every time she tries to get near him, he gets away. Finally, she entraps him. He, he refuses and flees from her request. She gets his coat. Then she's so angry at being rejected by this Hebrew slave. I mean, she's, she, Egyptians really look down on Hebrews, and then a slave nonetheless. She's angry, so she tells her husband that he tried to have his way with her. So the husband, angry like any husband would be, throws Joseph into prison. Now, I can't imagine what Joseph was thinking and feeling during this time. I mean, we, we hear stories about people when someone turns them in and they get bitter because they think back, it's your fault why I'm here, right? People stew, they get angry, they plot revenge. I wonder what was going through Joseph's mind when he got thrown into prison. I mean, was he angry at his brothers? Was he, was he thinking about getting even with them and it's their fault that I'm here? 
and stewing over it, getting more and more bitter. And then he, he goes through prison. He, he ends up working his way up because he, he becomes second in charge of this prison. And that's when Pharaoh's officials get thrown in to this entire thing. And when they're, they're thrown in, they have these two different dreams. And one of them, the dream ends up, they both end up becoming true. One of them is freed, one of them is hanged, but they forget about Joseph. For years pass, and then Pharaoh has a dream, and then the Pharaoh's uh, official reminds him, his cupbearer reminds him of Joseph. He brings Joseph out, and Joseph becomes, as we all know, prime minister in all of Egypt. So now he had gone from the prison to the palace. And Joseph is, is working, he's working hard, when guess who shows up? His brothers. Now, his brothers show up. They weren't expecting to see Joseph. They didn't know what happened to him. Probably didn't give him another thought. And they weren't thinking that this was their brother, that's for sure. I mean, he's, he's Egyptian, he's royalty, and he's, he's, you know, he's a muscular guy. They're not even thinking about it. They're begging him for food. And Joseph conducts a ruse to determine whether or not they would love their brother and give their life for him. And they end up doing that, and that's when he reveals himself. Now, what would you do? Let's go, let's rewind a little bit. When the brothers showed up, what would you do in that moment in time? And you thought about all the stuff they did to you. I, I, to just give you an idea, one of my siblings used to beat me up all the time. I really enjoyed the day when I passed them up. Because then I could bring the hurt. <laughs> right? And I'm thinking Joseph's going, oh, this is too good. <laughs> Wants revenge. But does he? No. No, he doesn't. And you know what he tells him even after revealing himself to him? He says this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He doesn't blame them. How does he not do that? How does he not say, it's your fault that I'm here. It's because of you that I'm in this situation right now. He says, no, God ultimately allowed it to happen, and it was for the good of everyone involved to bring about it that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, he had power that he could totally decimate them. But he doesn't. He uses it to help them and bless them. He knew they were guilty. But he doesn't conduct it for revenge. He recognizes that God allowed it for his glory. That's meekness. That's strength, power, under control. So we have Abraham, we've got Joseph, and then we've got great Moses. 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 Gotta love Moses. I mean, Moses' story is well known. But what perhaps is not well known is that, uh, I mean, he had some family problems. You ever had sibling rivalry? You ever had that? Are you jealous of your brother or sister? Or they were, like me, they were jealous of me. So, all right. Jealous of me. Um, I'm glad they're not here. But, but Joe, um, not Joseph, Moses had two siblings that were older than him that were a little jealous of him, Miriam and Aaron. Miriam and Aaron. Aaron. Now, we know that Moses married a woman named Zipporah who was a Midianite. Midianites were descendants of Jacob's second wife, wife Keturah. And so there was a, a distant heritage in relation to them. And he marries into this Midianite clan. They weren't, being, they weren't known to be God-fearers. They had many different gods. But apparently, uh, Zipporah worshipped the one true God. And he marries Zipporah and, and conducts life. And what happens after the exodus and everything that goes on, somewhere along the line, Zipporah dies. We don't know, we're not told exactly when she dies, but she dies. And Moses marries a Cushite next. 
a Cushite. Now, for those who don't know, I've been to the ancient land of Cush. It's right in the southern part of Egypt in northern part of Sudan, Sudan, which meant that his wife was black. Wife was black. And we learn in Numbers chapter 12 or chapter 13 that they get into a disagreement and anger because Moses married a Cushite. They're angry over this. And God hears their anger because they even say to themselves, he's not fit to lead anymore. Does God just speak through him? Does he not speak to us as well? God hears this. So God calls them out to the tent of meeting. Now Moses doesn't know anything about this. And God pronounces a judgment on them and basically says this, you guys are brown, but you don't like him taking someone who's darker? Well, you know what? You think lighter is better? I'm going to make you wicked white. So he makes her leprous. and Her skin turns as white as snow. And she's freaked out. Aaron's freaked out. Because he's pleading. He's saying, no, 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 because it's a death sentence. I mean, she is ostracized from the community. She is kicked out from everything. She's unclean. No one can touch her. I mean, and she's going to die. There's no cure for this. And Aaron, I mean, what does Moses do when hearing all this? I mean, he, I bet he's surprised at learning these details. And, and does he say, get her? Bring the pain. What's he say? He pleads for her life. Now, it's interesting. In the midst of this interchange, God says this in the book of Numbers. 12.3. Now, the man Moses was very meek. In the midst of this episode, this is what God says. More than all people who are on the face of the earth. Power under control. He wasn't trying to justify himself or exact vengeance. He was willing to endure insult and injury, but yet he would defend those who were verbally abusing him. Now, let's think about your workplace. How do you deal with your boss? They put you down or another employee stabbing you in the back. How do you deal with that? Maybe you're in your school. Maybe you've got a teacher that's yelling at you. And they're putting you down. Or maybe you have a classmate. Or maybe it's someone in your own family. How do you deal with that? Do you have a tendency to get all riled up within you and you come out and verbally explode like, like Pompeii? This verbal abuse of lava spewing everywhere, hurting everyone around? What do you do? What does God want you to do? Well, you say, well, if I don't defend myself, no one will. Ah, now we're getting into what Jesus did. Did Jesus defend himself when he was brought before Pilate? Did he defend himself when he was brought before Herod? What did he do? Now, like I said, this is completely antithetical to what we see going on in the world. But this is what God is calling us to, is this meek life. Not only do we have Moses, but we have David. Now, David, you want to talk about messed up family? David is really messed up. I mean, uh, he gets in this, he he starts working for Saul, who's the king. He's thinking, I'm doing really well. I'm working for King Saul. He's playing the harp. Remember that? He's playing the harp for King Saul. King Saul's being tortured by a demon. What does Saul try to do? He picks up his spear and tries to kill David three times. Now, talk about a not a good beginning to your relationship. And he continues to hang out with Saul's son. Matter of fact, he becomes Saul's son's best friend, Jonathan. And not only is he hanging out with Jonathan, but he starts finding one of his sisters pretty attractive. And then what does Saul do? He promises his daughter in marriage to David 
And then he withdraws it and gives her to somebody else. And then he gives his other daughter, Michael, in marriage. And then he's angry at David, so he takes her and gives her to another man. And then he tries to kill David so many different times. I mean, this is messed up. I mean, I know I've had in-law issues. And I don't think they've gone that far yet. Okay? I mean, I had in-law issues at the beginning. I, I don't know if, if you guys, anybody else here have had in-law, in-law issues? Be careful, because you and your in-law might be here. But I, I realized when we were, when I first got married, I mean, we had a hard beginning with my in-laws. And I was so rejoicing when they took, I, I, I looked in the hallway of my in-law's house, and I saw the wedding photo. It took me two years to realize that I wasn't in the photo. <laughs> it was my wife with her parents. <laughs> but I, where was I? I have no idea. I think I drew that to their attention. They finally put one up. They, like, photoshopped me in or something. But, um, but he had serious in-law problems. I mean, this is serious, serious in-law problems. And it gets so bad that Saul takes his army to pursue David because he believes that David is trying to usurp the throne. And David's on the run. I mean, literally, you got Saul on one side of a mountain, and David goes on another. And finally, he boxes him in, but Saul doesn't know that he boxed David in. All of his men are hiding out in a cave, in the very back of the cave. And just by, by divine providence, by providence, Saul has to go to the bathroom. So he's looking for a place to relieve himself, some solitude. And so he goes into the, the, the uh, cave, and he's doing his business, not realize that right behind him is an, all of David's mighty men. Talk about awkward. This is awkward. And David's men tell him, this is your chance. Kill him. So he sneaks up, and instead of killing him, he cuts off a corner of his robe, and he feels even bad doing that because this is God's anointed. Saul finishes, leaves, goes down probably the hill, and then David comes out, and he goes, Saul, what are you doing? I'm not trying to kill you. I had the opportunity to right now, and I didn't do it. Here's the robe to prove it. I'm not there to hurt you. Power under control. And then it happens even again. Saul comes after him again, and uh, he camps out at night, goes to sleep while his men go to sleep. David comes in, sneaks into the camp. All the men are completely out sleeping, and he comes right up on Saul's bed, and, his, and one of his servants goes, this is your chance. Kill him. Kill him. God's giving him to you. And he goes, I'm not going to touch God's anointed power under control. I'm not going to take vengeance into my own hands. So he takes the jug by his head. Saul had to sleep with some water right by him. And he, had, he takes his spear. And he goes out, and then the next morning wakes up, and they're down below, and he's on top of the hill going, I had a chance to kill you, but I didn't look. I'm not there to hurt you. This is meekness. It's power under control. He refused to take matters into his own hands. That is meekness. So we have this biblical description of meekness in David. But how do we get this? How do we get this? How do we become meek? Well, it begins with this, adopting the right disposition. Adopting the right disposition. Now, as Melissa was saying when she was up here, we talked about it in small groups, this can only become come through a work of grace, where God is wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit as a person has seen their sin and need of his Savior, and God places their spirit within them. An unbeliever can't have this type of meekness that the Bible is talking about, not in this way, and receive the same benefit as those who are meek in the way that God says. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's not just referring to people that are are meek and mild and not have Christ as Savior. This is a a different type of meekness that is seen in our conduct and in our attitude and response toward others' criticisms, 
and others gossip and slander and things like that. Now, how do we get this right uh, disposition? First of all, it comes from this, dying daily. Dying daily. Now, what do I mean by that? This is the pick up your cross daily. As a believer in Christ, we are to pick up our cross daily. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is dying to our desires. This is desire to our wants. This is mortifying the flesh is what the, old, the ancients called it. Dying to self. Going against our fallen and wicked heart. That's what it means. That's the first thing that we are to do is die daily to self. Put aside our, our desires, our rights, and we adopt God's as our own. Next, we are to be arming ourselves with Christ's attitude. Now, if anybody could demand anything, it's Jesus. He could demand full rights for everybody to do exactly what he wanted to do. But he didn't. He took the form of a servant. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, you've got to think like God, or think like Jesus did, and you have to incorporate that into yourself and your character and the essence of who you are, and it helps influence and direct how you are to live. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, Jesus didn't retaliate or threaten. He didn't try to fight back when he was mocked, spat upon, and his beard was being pulled out. Have you ever been around somebody that the slightest, they, they will, you will say the slightest thing to them and they attack you? You ever had that? I mentioned I've been reading different uh, biographies of, of founding fathers and American leaders. And one of the guys that's fascinating to me is Alexander Hamilton. Because it didn't matter who it was, if they said something bad about him, he went after him. He didn't, it didn't matter how low or how high. He always was out to justify himself and prove himself. And that is completely antithetical to the attitude that we are to have in Christ. We're to be arming ourselves with Christ's attitude. I mean, when Jesus had all of these people coming against him, did he fight back? Did he shout at them? What did he do? How did he respond? I mean, it's, it's amazing. What did, what did he do when Judas betrayed him? He called him friend. What did he do when Peter denied him? Did he call him stupid and cast him out? No, he ends up restoring him later. What does he even do when he's on the cross? Does he shout out and say, judgment's coming? Look out! He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. It's meek. It's power. I mean, he had complete power. But it's under control because he he was living his life to a higher authority. See, the reality is, is when we want to take vengeance on people, it's because we forget our higher authority. We become our authority, and we take that away from God. It's the whole driving, ed, the driver's ed thing. We've talked about this before, right? When you're learning how to drive, and, you're, and your driver's ed instructor's there, and you start to mess up, what do they do? They take the controls, right? See, we do that with God all the time. Rather than relinquishing control to God, we try to take the steering wheel back because we don't like where he's taking us. That's, that's 
it means that we have a very weak faith. We have to let her grow our faith. Jesus is even, even in death, he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know, know not what they are doing. Even in death, he kept his control. He wasn't given over to despair, but kept trusting in his Father. That's not weakness, that's unbelievable strength and power. And when it came to himself, he was a lamb. But when it came to defending the rights of others, he was a lion. See, meekness is referring to how I conduct myself when others say things against me. But it also me- it doesn't mean that I don't defend and come to defend other people when they're beating hurt. See, Jesus does that. He comes to defend other people all of the time. When it came to the welfare of others, he was a lion. He went toe-to-toe with the hypocritical religious leaders. He defended little children coming to him, to his disciples who were trying to turn them away. He fashioned a whip and drove out the money changers from the temple and even called Peter Satan when he tried to dissuade him from his heavenly mission. See, meekness is not weakness, but inner strength of character, resolve, and fortitude that allows mastery over oneself in difficult circumstances and situations with people who could care less about us. Now, this next step, which is probably... The most difficult is willing to be wronged. Willing to be wronged. This is the hardest one. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't have this one very well. Even as I was studying this, I, was, I, was, I felt like I was just getting beat bad. Because I have this inner desire. I have no problem suffering for when I'm doing right, but when I get accused of something I didn't do, everything within me flares up. And willing to be wronged. I'm still trying to learn what that means. And I'm amazed the more that I see Christ, he's not responding to the accusations that are coming at him left and right. But he has this inner strength of resolve. He, I mean, I have been accused of things in my life that I've had to deal with, misunderstanding, gossip, slander. I've had people accuse me of things that I didn't do or insinuate that my motives weren't pure. I want to defend myself to clear my name to show how truly uh, right I am. But that's not what he's talking about here. It's saying willing to suffer even the loss of reputation. See, meekness means being willing to be offended yourself, but it doesn't mean being a wet noodle or passerby and sweeping injustice under the rug when it's happening to others. On the contrary, it means standing up for others more than yourself. Meekness is not weakness. It is bending, not breaking. It's inherently strong. It's like this. Um, at my house, we have, uh, we've been gardening with some tomato plants, and there's this spider web that got constructed on the, the tomato plants. And so uh, my kids obviously wanted me to kill the spider, so that's my main job at my house. And so I, have to, I get this hose, and I put it on this spider web. What happens to the spider web? It doesn't take it away. It's amazing. I sprayed it, and the thing just, I couldn't believe how strong it was. So I started doing some research. Did you know that a spider's silk is seven times stronger in that, in that uh, size is seven times stronger than steel. That's amazing to me. That it can bend, but it doesn't break. Until you actually reach in and kind of have to grab it or put a tool in there that's stronger than that. But in that size, it's stronger than steel. That's incredible to me. But it's a, it's a picture of meekness. That I can bend underneath the pressure, but I'm not going to break. It's stronger than steel. Now one aspect of this whole thing of having meekness is if you haven't figured it out it's maintaining self-control when responding to other people maintaining self-control 
Now, as I said before, this flies in the face of what the world values, but it's the way of Christ. And having self-control means this, abandoning anger. Abandoning anger. Now, I know many of us in this room, some people get anger. You have a quick temper. How many of you have a hot temper or a quick temper? (laughs) There's some of you you need to put your hands up right now. I've seen you. Okay. And we all, some of us have quicker fuses than others, but here we see that this, this passage is, is, is it's fascinating. It's actually rooted in Psalm 37. And, um, and in Psalm 37, 8, we read this, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. It's saying that I'm going to abandon anger of my sense of getting my pound of flesh. These are people that are God-controlled and have mastery over their passions, especially anger. Now, here's another thing that I, I, I want to address. It also means this, abstaining from passive aggressiveness. Now, some of us are really good at not exploding. See, that's the blowout. Many of us, it's a slow leak. And that's passive aggressiveness. What that means is this. It's when, I am, when I'm frustrated, rather than explode on you for the injustice you've done to me, I'm going to let it come out in snide comments and snarky, snarky comments. And I'm going to get my little pieces, and I want you to get my little verbal barb, because I want you to know that I'm still hurting. But see, that's still taking matters into our own hands. We're to abandon that type of mindset. And many of us do that. We're like, well, I don't get angry. But you are so passive-aggressive in what you say and what you text and what you imply. You've got to abandon that. You're to be living your life before Christ. All of it. Don't just follow the letter of the law. It's about the heart of what God wants you to do. And if you know in your heart that you're still angry and you're letting it out like that, that's wrong. We're to be abstaining from that type of behavior. Because that really, at its root, is bitterness. Is bitterness. And we see this in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We all need grace. That no root of bitterness, because you don't want them to be forgiven. That's what he's talking about. Springs up and causes trouble. And many by it become defiled. Because you're bitter and you're letting it come out in a different way. You have to abandon and abstain from that passive aggressiveness. Also, this last uh, adopting a new disposition involves, requires us refusing retaliation. Write that down. Refusing retaliation. This is really where we can see and follow the example of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 23 says this, For to this you have been called. It's a calling. God calls us all to. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Something to imitate. Something to follow. A template, if you will. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, what did he not do? He didn't retaliate. He didn't revile in return. He didn't have to get that last word in. How many of you, when you fight, you have to get the last word in? You know, I have learned with my wife that I get the last word in every single time. Yes, dear. Works every time. All right? But it is. It's not reviling in return. And we have a tendency to get angry and let it flare up. And we want to get, we want to justify ourselves. And we want to stick it to them. Saying No. Don't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself 
to him who judges justly. See, he recognized the higher authority. He was living to the higher authority of God and his word. And he refused to take it upon himself. Because we think that God's not doing anything. I have to do it. I have to take it upon myself and I have to do it now. And God's saying, no, that's where you die to self. You die to self. And you live the life that God wants you to live. It is definitely power under control and refusing to retaliate. You know, it's, it reminds me of Jackie Robinson, the great African-American uh, and first African-American baseball player. And I remember the, the story when Dodgers president Branch Rickey selected him to become the first African-American to play in the major, majors this century. And he wanted a man who could restrain himself from responding to the ugliness of the racial hatred that was certain to come. And a shorthand version comes of their fateful conversation in August 1945, and I love this conversation. Ricky says to him, I know you're a good ball player. What I don't know is whether you have the guts. Robinson said, Mr. Ricky, are you looking for a Negro who is afraid to fight back? Ricky exploding, Robinson, I'm looking for a ball player with guts enough not to fight back. The strength that he had to have to endure the hate and the racial uh, epithets that he had coming at him again and again. And he, 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 it was his resolve to get through that. And he kept that con- under control because they knew if he exploded, it would, the whole thing would crumble. He had to endure such hostility. It's a picture of Christ. And it's a picture of how we are to live, to continue on, to keep that strength under control. Now, if we are to become meek the way that Jesus commands, and it requires us doing this, we're going to go through these rather quickly. It requires us, number four, implying the right, employing the right disciplines. See, this just doesn't happen overnight. Though God gives us his spirit, we have to learn how to grow and, and beat our flesh down to train ourselves in the matters of the spirit. that We might live our lives according to what the spirit has for us. And that's what even the word discipline means. It means to train. So these are the, the means of grace by which we train ourselves to be more like Christ. The first one is this, walking in the word. You can't become like Christ if you don't read the word and let the word read you. You cannot. To say that you're a Christian and you're not letting the word of God read you is an oxymoron. A complete oxymoron. We have to let the word of God seep into our our being because it is the means by which God has spoken to us about his son, revealing the life of his son and what he requires of us and how we are to live and conduct ourselves. We need to be walking in the word so much so that the word gets in us. Secondly, it involves pouring our hearts out in prayer. We do not place a value on prayer the way that God does. God values prayer a lot more than we do. He longs for us to talk with him, to commune with him. That's why Jesus got angry, because they had, they had put down prayer. And they'd marginalized it, trivialized it. And he's saying that, no, God values prayer, where people can come to him and pour out their hearts to him. And when we find out that we're pouring our hearts out to him, that he is changing us from the inside out. As he is bringing his word by his spirit into our lives, he's showing us our sin, and he's showing us also what it means to be a follower of his. The third thing we're to do is make sure that we are submitting to the spirit. See, it's not enough to read the word, and it's not enough to pray if we refuse to do what God tells us to do. Being meek, we must learn to recognize his voice. It means submitting, getting down low, and, and again, acknowledging that he is the Lord over 
us. Now, I want to, to look at this last point. Because we, we have only looked at blessed are the meek. We've not talked about for they shall inherit the earth. I want to talk about that because what the earth is, and the inherit the earth, it's not talking about literal land in that aspect of things like a country. It's hearkening back to language that's found in Psalm 37 where the Israelites would be inheriting the promised land. But for us who are beneficiaries of Christ's atoning death on the cross, that is referring to the new heavens and the new earth, which is heaven, glory. So when it's talking about that, it's saying then that we, are, we have a destination. If you are meek, you're going to be inheriting your heavenly destination. And that means looking forward. That's number five. Looking forward to our heavenly destination. It's about the glory of our real home. It involves looking toward the time when Jesus will reign manifestly. Where that kingdom will be fully instituted. Where we will see it in all of its glory and seeing him and all of his glory. All the temptations, all the struggles, and all the sins will be seen in all of their awful horror, and we will see Christ in all of his glory and beauty. Now, the reason he also says this, shall inherit the earth, it's the understanding then that the wrongs will be righted completely. All of the injustice and struggles that you endured will be reversed, and all of, I mean, everything will be corrected. God will take justice and dispense it in his way and in his time in complete manner and all of your suffering and all of the things that you dealt with will be taken care of for those that did harm you. And lastly, we will receive our reward personally. Our reward personally. It's interesting here that's actually in the Greek when it says, for they shall inherit the earth. It's emphatic in the Greek. So it's they, they only will inherit it. And who are they inheriting it from? From Christ himself that they will receive when we will receive our reward personally. So it's not the survival of the fittest. It's the survival of the meekest. And we have to endeavor as we continually take up our crosses, as we try to seek to live this life that God wants us to by the power of his spirit working in conjunction with his word, that the grace that has been afforded unto us, we will start living this meek life in such a way that God receives glory. Because when we are meek, when we are willing to put off our own desires, when we are willing to die to ourselves, people see that. And then who do they see? Jesus in you. Because they say, what would possess a person to undergo that type of pain and punishment? It's because they have a Savior and they're submitting their life to Him and people see the Savior more than they see you. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence asking you to speak to us to teach us how we can do this in our workplaces. Lord, when our, our boss says something wrong toward us or our coworker, or Lord, help us to stand true. Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to you and the consequences thereof, knowing that you will become, you will be our defender. You will be the one that helps us. Lord, if we have been one that has been living our life by the motto of survival of the fittest, may we turn back to you. May we seek to be truly meek, just as you were, this strength under control, that your name might be glorified. Lord, help us to die to ourselves. Help us to live according to the Spirit. And Lord, make your name known in our lives. And help us to truly see and understand and live our life by faith in the realization that it is truly the meek that will inherit the earth. So Lord, glorify your, your name in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.